Welcome to With Friends Like These, Good Intentions Edition. When I was telling people about this season, I promised that some episodes would deal with things that most of us think are good, but are actually bad. And this is the first one of those episodes. We're going to talk about the phenomenon of political junkies and how they, as our guest this week puts it, hooked us on politics and broke our democracy. That guest is Claire Bond Potter. She's a political historian at the New School for Social Research. She's the executive editor of Public Seminar and was the author of the blog Tenured Radical from 2006 to 2015. And I want to add a quick word about the term we'll be using. As someone with several recovering opioid addicts in my life, I find the word junkie to be kind of jarring. And I did my best to avoid repeating it too much. But it is the thing we call a certain group of people. And so we will be using that word. It is a thing that some people call themselves. Please consider this a preemptive apology and a content warning to those who may have some similar issues to mine. Now, Claire Bond Potter. Claire, welcome to the show. So I think when most people hear the term political junkie, especially people who listen to this podcast, they probably think of it as like a good thing. Like it's good to be interested in politics. But I understand that you are here to complicate that idea. Well, yes, it actually is complicated. And I guess as a historian, I should start by saying that the phrase was invented by Hunter S. Thompson in 1972 um, in his book, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 1972. And he was talking about the unexpected rush of pleasure he took in political campaigns And as you know, he was kind of an iconoclast. Um, As you probably also know, he did a lot, a lot of drugs. And (laughs) so when he wrote uh, the phrase political junkie, he was exactly saying that political campaigns and politics in general are something that are really not good for us. And they give us a rush of pleasure and we're drawn to them and we want more and more, even though the pleasure is really an empty one and um, obsesses us without really producing anything good. And the phrase kind of slipped into parlance. There was a period in which some journalists would say, well, I'm really interested in politics, but I'm not a political junkie, right? In other words, I'm a serious person. But then by the 1980s and 1990s, People began to use the phrase political junkie to describe a certain kind of person who was not exactly a journalist, who wasn't exactly in politics, but somebody who did politics as a hobby and as an obsession. And of course, that phrase was just sitting there waiting for the digital Mm -hmm. world. Because as both you and I know, once people started become bloggers, there were those of us who just jumped in because finally here was a platform where we could write about the thing we cared about most. I mean, there's definitely a good side to being somewhat obsessive about politics. It is, as in everything, a a question of balance, right? 
uh, it's being able to identify White House reporters by the back of their head, but also being willing to call out people who are doing bad reporting, right? And also being willing to bring focus back to policy when things start to get horse racy. One of the special things about blogs, and I don't talk about this as much in the book as I probably should have, was the comment section. Because mm-hmm. the the audiences that collected around blogs like Wonket um, and Talking Points Memo and so on were real communities of people who talked to each other, who talked to the writers, and who actually debated these issues among themselves. So that if someone like you wrote about the Defense of Marriage Act and its impact on actual gay and lesbian people, actual gay and lesbian people would chime in and mm-hmm. talk back to you um, and allow you to dig into it, to, to allow the story to acquire more depth. And that was something that media really didn't do before blogging. And so I think, I think that was a very important aspect of how blogging changed journalism, which is that newspapers and magazines, when they went online, began to discover the discomfort that that bloggers knew right along, which is if you write something, you're going to be held accountable for it. Yeah, so I feel like we, we've done a good job of covering what is great <laughs> about alternative media and what is edifying about having an interest in politics and policy. But I think it's really important, especially for the audience of this show and this network, that we talk about the ways that this can go wrong, which is what your book has is a lot about. When I began this book, one of the things that I understood was that there was lots of media that could be classified as alternative media. I begin the book with Izzy Stone's um, four-page weekly, IF Stone's Weekly. And I talk about that as a really foundational form of alternative media. Why was it alternative? Well, it was because Izzy Stone didn't take advertising. It was because he distrusted government completely. And it was because he researched one story at a time. So you look at that and you say, well, this is the beginning of blogging, right? That this was the, the um, ethic that bloggers were able to put out on the internet, which is doing something that most journalists couldn't do, follow a story, follow a story, follow a story. And by 2004, 2006, what you're seeing in the blogging world is is bloggers pushing stories back into the mainstream that journalists actually don't really want to cover. Um, And I'm thinking, for example, and I have a whole chapter on this, of, of George Allen's Senate campaign in which he uh, used a racist term in relation to a staffer from the opposite campaign. And journalists had been watching George Allen use racist words and do racist things for years, and they had never printed it. And so it was bloggers pushing this back into the news that actually forced mainstream journalists to cover it. So that was the good thing, right? But Mm -hmm. as we turn the corner into the 2010s, part of what we're seeing is digital platforms that begin as blogs becoming these sort of corporate entities that print whatever they want, and they're not accountable to anyone. Bloggers were accountable to each other. 
But a Breitbart was accountable to no one but the people who were funding Andrew Breitbart. Um, And similarly, and this takes us back to the 1990s, um, Matt Drudge was accountable to no one but himself, right? So we remember some of the things that Matt Drudge got right, like the Lewinsky affair, that that was actually true, and it had been deeply reported by someone else. Um, But Matt Drudge got things wrong all the time, and he still does, and he doesn't really care. So I think, you know, the potential for the good and the bad was always there. And it's really when we start getting into the 2010s and we see the investment of big money um, and political forces into alternative media that the whole thing starts to turn sour. We've talked, we've talked about alternative journalism, how that changed, how it first was about accountability and then it sort of became big journalism itself and just completely unaccountable to anyone. And that's the, let's say those are, that's the dealers, right? They're the users. And those are the people and the kind of way of looking at politics that in my career I've come to feel much more ambivalent about. I agree Um, with you completely. And I think particularly, you know, someone like Breitbart um, and the the, his association with Project Veritas are an excellent example of that, because these are people who are involved with politics, but in an extraordinarily cynical and manipulative way. And yes, I think it's a good analogy. They are the dealers. And uh, or Fox News is the dealer (laughs) and the Mm -hmm. audience are the ones that can't turn it off, that can't make it through their day without hearing more terrible things about the Democrats and more terrible things about Barack Obama and more terrible things about Hillary Clinton. And that that it gives them a kind of um, jolt of energy and excitement, a sense of being part of something that's bigger than they are that is very energizing, but that is ultimately also very destructive. And people get a literal rush from hearing their opinions validated, right? What happens is so, that's so insidious is that rush isn't just addictive, but it, it's false. Uh, it gives the false illusion of control and participation, when really it, they're, all they're doing is consuming. Well, I, I think that your comment about participation is extraordinarily important because to go back to the good just for a second, part of what was great about blogging and even Facebook and Twitter in the early years was participation. Uh, this mm-hmm. sense that you could talk to someone directly. And you could have authentic conversations across distance, across status, um, that you could get to people who would talk back to you. Um, And those are all good things. They turned out to be not very good things when all those political junkies started getting off on, um, you know, doxing people and um, attacking people online and putting up anti-Semitic memes. Um, You know, I was watching the um, PBS NewsHour last night, and they had a couple people talking about Amy Coney Barrett. And Judy Woodruff said, what is off limits? What should not be talked about in these hearings? And the pro-Barrett person said, well, religion, obviously. And the woman who was there to dispute the Barrett nomination immediately said her children 
Her children should be off limits. And when pushed by Judy Woodruff, this woman explained that she too had been nominated for a federal judgeship and that her children had been relentlessly attacked online, um, both in their personal email accounts, on Twitter, and so on and so forth. So, so we saw that kind of initial high of being able to speak to each other across differences very quickly narrow down to access that is being used to attack and harm and intimidate and bully. I, I specifically think of fantasy football, which I, I am a fantasy football owner, um, because in fantasy football, everybody's a manager. No one's labor, right? Like <laughs> the only reason you care about a player is are they healthy or not? And are they going to give me the points I need or not? And you just think you get you get to pretend that all sports is about is thinking strategically. It's just moving pieces around on a, on a board or, you know, digitally shuffling players. And I think it creates a sense that we forget, you know, we forget the humanity of these people who are risking their lives. I mean, I know that sounds overdramatic, but football is a really dangerous sport and they're playing at the height of COVID right now, <laughs> you know, risking their lives. To- and I think one of the things that has happened to politics is it's not just that as people are going at each other online. And I think Twitter is is an obvious example of this, but Facebook is also a good example of this because it is often people you know who are attacking you on Facebook. One of the things I like about Twitter is it's usually people I don't know who are attacking me. <laughs> so I don't really care. I just block or mute them. But on Facebook, if it's somebody you know that you get into a terrible argument with, then you, you really got a social dilemma. You know, what do, what do you do about this thing? But, but I think it's not just that, that people have forgotten that the person at the other end of the internet is a real person, um, that they also become convinced of their own rightness. And what used to be a really rigorous form of research that bloggers really prided themselves on, well, Everybody on Twitter and Facebook isn't going to do that kind of research before they make assertions that are, you know, wildly inappropriate on on one level or another. In fancy football league, everyone's a manager. And in politics, in the sphere of the political junkie, or we can call the very online is sort of the newer term, which I think is also appropriate. In in that world, everyone's a political consultant. You know, no one's a voter. (laughs) I mean, yes, they vote. But... Um, you think about politics in terms of strategy and you think about politics in terms of like who won the morning and whatnot. There's no lid, you know, when it comes to um, when it comes to doing politics online. If you're a real journalist, you know, at some point, someone on the campaign or someone in the White House comes out and calls the lid and everybody goes home or they go to a bar or they go, you know, somewhere to have what they actually know is a different conversation than they would be having on the campaign trail or in the White House. Whereas online, the conversation just bleeds and bleeds and bleeds into every hour of the day. And and I think, you know, the other aspect of this, and I think this is what alternative media has actually done to our capacity to have conversation, is there are so many websites that exist almost entirely for the purpose of making money. 
And what they do is they sort of churn information over and over and over again. They don't really add to it. So that you have this sense in online conversation about politics right now that you've actually had all the conversations. There are no conversations left to have. And I think that leaves those who really care about politics often with a sense of futility. If there are no Mm -hmm. conversations left to have, then why should we actually bother imagining that democracy is about conversation? Not only does that lead to a kind of um, despair on the part of people who want to use politics as a lever to move policy and to make people's lives better, but it also creates a situation where the only conversation left are these horse racy spin conversations. And I also think outsourcing some of your political decision making is okay. You know, like picking a team is not a bad thing. (laughs) But if you've picked a team and that's it, and you don't do anything more besides cheer your team and talk strategy for your team, like that's a problem. Well, I agree with you. And it's actually one of the things I've become interested in um, in the last two or three years is what happens to your thinking if as someone who is, you know, on the left, as I am, if you spend more of your time actually talking to knowledgeable conservatives and finding out what they think. Um, it, It seems like a rather small thing to do, but it actually creates brain space for getting out of those, you know, rah, rah, my team against your team type of heads. Um, It creates brain space for actually looking at the Trump administration as a place where policies are being made, many of them bad, many many of them not well thought out, but then imagining what policies could be well thought out, what policies might be effective, what are the needs that these policies are being made in relation to, and is there some way liberals or the left could actually address these needs in a way that was ethical and, um, and humane. Um, so, so I do think that part of what the kind of transformation that you're describing and that I describe in my book has done is actually close down that much more complex space in the middle where people actually talk, um, figure out what the possible compromises are and how they could cooperate on some things and not other things which is, of course, what politics used to be like. And now a word from our corporate overlords. Made to Fail is a very welcome sponsor to With Friends Like These. I love this show. A broken unemployment system in Florida, crowded elections in Wisconsin during a global pandemic, rampant political corruption in Georgia— Those failures didn't have to happen. A new podcast, Made to Fail, connects the dots between these government failures and pulls back the curtain on the conservative policies that time and again have failed the people they claim to protect. Made to Fail takes you state by state through the policies, programs, and systems that have let us down. You'll hear from the people and families who have suffered because of these failed policies and the experts who've been studying these issues every step of the way. As it turns out, these failures, they weren't by accident. They were by design. And if we're going to find our way out of this crisis, we need to know how we got here. Get the full story. Download Made to Fail today wherever you get your podcasts. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Bombas. 
Bombas makes the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. They have literally rethought every little detail of the socks we wear to make them way more comfortable. I happen to be wearing Bombas right now. Complete coincidence. I do wear them pretty often, but I didn't know I'd be reading this ad today. And what I can tell you is they are really, really comfortable. I am wearing the ankle high uh, socks because I am wearing high tops. And that'll tell you one of the things I love about them. They peek out just the right amount over the high tops. That may be my high tops. It may be their genius. I don't know. And they do more than keep your feet cozy. They help give back to the most vulnerable members of our community. For every pair of socks you purchase, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. The generosity of Bombas customers has allowed them to donate over 34 million pairs of socks through their nationwide network of over 3,000 giving partners. And the impact is more powerful than ever. To those experiencing homelessness, these socks represent the dignity of putting on clean clothes, a small comfort that's especially important right now. Give a pair when you buy a pair and get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com slash friends. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash friends for 20% off your first purchase. Bombas.com slash friends. With Friends Like These is also brought to you by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness. Now, I know that list is probably pretty long these days, but I've been thinking about how I've been thinking about thinking because in these semi-quarantine times, it's like I have almost too much time to think about stuff. Like things have come up that I haven't thought about in years, like old arguments, old friendships, old relationships. I'm sure, pretty sure that's happened for you too. Well, BetterHelp is there. BetterHelp will help you do that. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's convenient, and you can begin communicating in under 24 hours. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling. Send a message to your counselor anytime, and you'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. The service is available for clients worldwide, and it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling. Financial aid is available. There's a broad range of expertise which may not be locally available in your area. BetterHelp can connect you with licensed professionals who are specialized in depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, and trauma. Anything you share is confidential. You can check out the testimonials posted daily on their site. And in fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp, they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash friends. Join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash friends. And we're back to continue the conversation. And so what do you think of my, you know, sports and politics analogy, especially sort of that local versus national level? So I want to come back to your analogy that nobody plays fantasy minor league baseball. And I think that's true. And I think it's a comment on how much our world of media consumption is focused on big things rather than small things. 
But I would also argue that minor league baseball plays a function, even if it doesn't exist in that larger atmosphere, which is it grounds communities. And of course, we know that minor league baseball is actually in trouble. And the analogy for me would be minor league newspapers. The Mm. demise of community journalism, and of course, Margaret Sullivan has just written a great book about this called Ghosting the News, where she actually tracks the swift collapse of newspapers, not just in second cities and small towns, but in major cities that are now left with maybe one newspaper. Um, And, you know, one of the things those newspapers used to do is cover city councils, cover state legislatures, cover school board meetings, and so on and so forth. And one of the things that alternative media did essentially was destroy those newspapers as centers for community, but also as windows to local democracy. And I think one of the things we have to think about as people who care about media, you and I, is what would it take to actually reopen those windows for democracy? What would it take to actually restart those minor league newspapers um, that actually had a commitment to making democracy transparent at a very local level and to make direct connections between people's lives and the way politics happened in their city, their town, and their state. So I actually think that alternative media has played a role in shutting that down. I also think alternative media could play a role in opening that back up again. And I want to return to your comment about you know, finding intelligent conservatives to talk to. And I, there are jokes to make about that. Um, and it, it's especially, um, let's see, I have to go into a little bit of self-examination even to respond to it. Because one of the ideas behind this show was that I would talk to those conservatives. And as anyone who's followed the show for a while will know, that became less a part of the show because what I found was it is literally difficult to find people to talk to in good faith. And those who I could talk to in good faith, we tended to agree on a lot. You know, they're the never Trumpers. And those who I disagreed with a lot, conversations with them just wouldn't get very far because we it, it is so hard to find yourselves on the same planet these days it's not even good faith versus bad faith really it's just the information pools are not connected i think the information pools are not connected but i think there's another problem too which is that anything we say or write or do can proliferate endlessly on the internet So the kinds Mm -hmm. of experimental conversations that we used to be able to have, I mean, think about, for example, I'm going way, way back here, uh, William F. Buckley's Firing Line. And that television show, first of all, it was on public television, and it was the sort of the conservative angle that public television was putting out there. But the other thing that Buckley did, which I think was incredibly smart, which was to get conservative ideas out there by creating debates, real debates between liberals and conservatives, right? So nobody wanted to put a national television show that was about conservatives on the air. 
even though there was a lot of that stuff, you know, circulating on videotape, a lot of it was on radio and so on and so forth. But what Buckley did is he put people in dialogue and actually they had fights. They had real arguments. But there was also before the day in which you could say something on television or say something on Twitter or say something on a podcast and know that if, in fact, the audience that you have drawn around you didn't like it, that they were going to make your life hell for the indeterminate future. So I think one of the things that alternative media has introduced into our lives that does exactly make the kinds of conversations you're talking about more difficult is not just alternative realities, but the fact that if you don't stick to that alternative reality, if you move away from your branding, your audience becomes enraged at you and goes after you very, very publicly. And you can literally lose your job um, if not want to just like burn your computer and your cell phone so that you don't have to hear any more from these people. You know, I, I do wonder if we had sort of a bubble to talk to conservatives honestly, if we said, you know, if you didn't think you would lose all your cred in the movement by having a really open, open-minded, open-ranging conversation with me, would you do it? I actually think one answer to the whole how to have a conversation with someone that disagrees with you is to have it just to not fucking broadcast it, right? Like, I mean, I just, I just, when I talk to my mother-in-law, we just talk. It's very, it's... <laughs> You know, like we're not tweeting each other. Um, but I also feel like my mother-in-law will occasionally seek me out to ask what I what what I think. Like she's looking for a progressive perspective, right? And that is literally the only example I can think of of uh, someone who has come to me as a conservative to say. Tell me what you think, you know, in good faith. I am, I am sincerely interested in what the progressive point of view is on this. I don't, I don't think it's an equal. There is not a, another hand reaching out on the other side. You know what I mean? Like there's no, there is no conservative podcast where right now a guest and a host are talking about how they wish they could create more conversations with liberals. I think you're probably right about that. And I want to just sort of walk back the question of William F. Buckley, too, because by no means did I mean to valorize him. I think if you sort of look at television more generally in that period, there's it probably was not a place where either one of us would have felt very comfortable for <laughs> thousands of reasons. Okay. You know, Norman okay. Mailer was a progressive and he was a hideous homophobe. So and that was acceptable um, to many, many people. I think, you know, the point I was trying to make about Buckley is that In fact, no one was putting right-wing ideas on television. And they weren't putting right-wing ideas on television for very good reasons, right? And so by creating debates, he was able to do that. I don't think we could do that nowadays. And that was really my point. I don't think it's possible. And I agree with you about the not reaching back. I think conservatism has become a movement that is driven primarily by money and primarily by business interests. And I don't think many conservatives think there is any percentage in in reaching back. Um, So I don't disagree with you about any of that. I would say 
I think we are reaching a breaking point with democracy in which some conservatives and some progressives are realizing we're at a stalemate. And so the question is, what is going to happen next? We can't actually go on like this. And one of the consequences of having gotten to this point was exactly Donald Trump. Um, You know, Donald Trump could not have been elected before 2016. And there was a perfect storm of media collapse on a certain level in 2016 that allowed that to happen, that allowed um, populists to open the door and install the worst president we've ever had in the history of our country. And so I think there is some recognition, not just among never Trumpers, that 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 something's broken and that actually the party system itself is not going to survive it unless it changes. Um, Mm -hmm. And and I think that one thing we might want to think about as media people, you and I, is to what extent have we lost our sense that there is any other way but this? And how do we regain a sense that there are other ways to do media that don't simply capitulate to division? Last ad break you'll have to sit through. With Friends Like These is brought to you by PayPal. I've been using PayPal more than usual, uh, more than I used to. Uh, Some of the 12-step programs I'm involved in no longer can pass the basket, as they say. So I use PayPal to support them. And I've found myself, I have some younger friends whose jobs have just completely fallen through. So you know what? I'm a job creator. (laughs) I've invited them over to help me out with various stuff. And of course, I use PayPal to pay them because it's the easiest way to do it. Things may have changed all around us, but our inner drive to be there for the people we care about runs deeper than ever. Our normal has changed, and we're all finding new ways to connect and continue supporting one another. We've started social distancing when we spend time with friends and explore local cuisine, and we're doing more to support and advocate for underrepresented communities. So what we need more than ever is an easy way to support each other from afar. With the PayPal app, sending and receiving money is faster and easier. Stay connected to the people you love. Quickly and securely send money to friends and family just about anywhere in the world. Start a money pool to split the bill, go in on a gift, or fundraise for a good cause. Make touch-free QR code payments at your local favorite restaurant or farmer's market. Donate to a local nonprofit or support a cause from across the country. PayPal is making it easy to pay safely, quickly, and easily. Download the PayPal app today. Terms and conditions apply. Stamps.com is a proud sponsor of With Friends Like These. You know, I never thought I'd be using Stamps.com as often as I do. I mean, I was using it before. I am a small business. I have things to send out. But now I'm using it a lot. I'm using it for business stuff and I'm using it for personal things. I write a lot more now that, you know, we're in the semi-quarantine time. Like I wind up sending people like little trinkets and stuff. And I do that maybe even more than I would because it's so easy. I don't have to go to the post office. I don't even have to fish around for stamps in my own like stamp stash. I just have to use stamps.com and the free scale that they sent me. 
Thousands of small business owners have discovered the benefits of Stamps.com in recent months. They've been able to keep their businesses running and avoid crowds at the post office all from their own computers. With Stamps.com, you can print postage on demand and avoid going to the post office. And you'll save money with discounted rates you can't get at the post office. Stamps.com also offers UPS services with discounts of up to 62% and no residential surcharges. Stamps.com brings all of the mailing and shipping services you need to your computer in the comfort and safety of your own home or office. Whether you're a small business sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or just working from home and need to mail stuff. As I said, with Stamps.com, you get great discounts too. Five cents off of every stamp and up to 62% off USPS and UPS shipping rates. Stamps.com is a no-brainer. You save time and money. Right now, my listeners can get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in friends. That's Stamps.com. Enter friends. That is it. Listen to the end of the show. There are stakes that are so high right now, right, that it's, it is difficult for me, at least, to think big picture about healing that rift, even though I hear everything you're saying. I really do. And I also agree we're at a place where things are broken and who knows what's going to happen next. They might get brokener, which is terrifying. I think it um, is terrifying. I agree with you. And and. I, I am not actually one of those when they go low, we go high people. Um, I, you don't know me well, but my personality <laughs> is if you go low, I'm going to go even lower. There's no, oh, okay. there's no question right. in my mind. I am, I am exactly that person. I do think one of the things that is clear about politics is how much Washington consisted of an intricate series of gentlemen's agreements, gentlemen's <laughs> agreements about what, what one did and what one didn't do. And oddly, even during the fiercest Senate and congressional battles of the 1960s and 70s, in many ways, those rules held. You know, Lyndon Johnson got the votes for the Civil Rights Act the way he always got the votes for, for what he wanted. As one senator who was going to vote against it said, I walked into President Johnson's office and my tax returns were sitting on his desk. You know, that was the deal. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the, the fact that all these gentlemen's agreements have simply been discarded has shown a real weakness in our political system, I think. And that's really what needs to be addressed. Um, my view is that we need to elect more Alexandra Ocasio-Cortezes. You know, we need to elect people who not only ask the question, why are things the way they are, but are willing to promote solutions to make them different. Um, one of the things that I've been so impressed by um, with Ocasio-Cortez, for example, is how someone who literally had no legislative experience before she was in Congress has not only been good at disrupting, but at offering alternatives and understanding how to work the system in new ways that are progressive. So, so I think we need to re-examine what was, what was obviously a fragile political system 
before Trump walked in and Mitch McConnell walked in and stepped all over it. Yeah, the thing that that I've come to believe is that as you emphasize the gentleman's agreement part of this is that things started to fall apart when marginalized people started to enter the halls of power because the willingness to make a gentleman's agreement with someone who isn't someone you would normally see in your social circle is minimized, right? But a lot of Americans fetishize the the days of the gentleman's agreement and the norms, right? As this triumph of goodwill and good faith, when really it was it was built on what I would say is white supremacy and patriarchy. I would actually push us back to the post Watergate period, um, where and you know a whole new Congress uh, is elected between 1972 and 1974, and you know they're called the Watergate Babies, and they're mm-hmm. all of these progressives, uh, progressive Democrats who run for Congress. Um, Bella Abzug is one of them. Um, Shirley Chisholm is already in Congress in 1969. Barbara Mikulski is another one. Um, and they all come into Congress um, wanting to end the war in Vietnam, wanting to make civil rights real, wanting to make feminism real. And the first thing they run into is a guy named Wayne Hayes, who runs the uh, C- Congressional Appropriations Committee, the House Appropriations Committee, which actually makes him the most powerful person in Congress. And what Wayne Hayes can do is if you put a bill on the floor that Wayne Hayes doesn't want on the floor, he sends someone over to take your air conditioner out in the middle of August or something like that. So one of the things that happens in in the aftermath of this Congress coming in is a reporter um, who figures out that Wayne Hayes has a secretary named Elizabeth Ray who is kept on staff to have sex with people. Um, And he loans her out to have sex with people. He has sex with her himself. But the only thing she does is have sex. And her her office is right next door to Bella Obzog's office. Right. So Bella Obzog has like nine people packed in her office. Elizabeth Ray has uh, an office that has a couch. And, you know, what she says to this reporter (laughs) is, I can't type. I can't file. I can't even use the phone. Right. And so, but everybody knew this about Wayne Hayes for years, right? And other people were doing it too. And so what these new progressive Congress people say is, no, we're not going to allow this to continue and it has to stop. And they push Wayne Hayes out. They push other corrupt uh, congressional leadership people out. Um, And it's because they're elected in large enough numbers to actually have an agenda. And I think that's really what the Democratic Party has to do. And it's not, in fact, going low to put a tremendous amount of muscle uh, uh, toward getting majorities, not just in Congress, but in state legislatures. Um, And that's that's really where, you know, I think we strike back at the gentleman's agreement is, as you're saying, putting different bodies in those seats putting different bodies in seats who will say no to politics as usual, who will pass limitations on on campaign financing, who will push limitations on lobbying, who will close all the doors to making people rich that currently Congress uh, is, is plagued by, I think. So one thing I've, I feel like I'm hearing, and I just want to get some clarity from you on, is 
a little bit of equal and opposite, you know, both sides kind of thing, like Republicans or conservatives do uh, play this game and uh, liberals play this game. And I just wonder to what extent do you think that's true? I mean, definitely there are bad actors who are conservative and there are bad actors who are liberal and there are, you know, trolls and doxing that happen all over the political spectrum. But do you think this problem of the extremely online, aka political junkie, is something that is equally distributed? I think it's not equally distributed in the sense that one of the things Republicans do now is they lie all the time. They originate lies, all of them. Most importantly, they support the lies that the president tells. And so part of what is so disturbing about the Republican um, social media sphere is that it's not just that it's an alternative reality, that is disturbing enough, but that there are actually no constraints on the lies that are being told. And I think we were all kind of blown away by that in 2016. I think a lot of us who were watching these lies being told, watching the lies being spread around the internet, mostly not by professionals, as it turns out, it's mostly us who does it. Um, And so I think to that extent, I think it's not equal. I do think Democrats try to tell the truth. It's not that they always tell the truth. I was looking at some numbers that said, you know, during the 2016 campaign, Donald Trump told the truth less than 20% of the time. And Hillary Clinton told the truth 62% of the time. And so I think the initial use of social media for politics, which was that politicians, and this, of course, was the Howard Dean campaign, right? That Howard Dean could talk directly to his supporters. And then Obama really refined that technique of going straight to the people who were his supporters and talking openly and honestly with them. Those same channels could be used to tell lies. And I think that's something that nobody anticipated in 2008, right? It began to be a little clearer in 2010 when the Tea Party started forming. And by 2016, the art of telling lies online had been perfected. So in that sense, I don't think it's a parallel situation. In the sense that Democrats could stop using social media in the alarmist ways that they do use it. I think that would be a good idea. Clara, that was just a fascinating conversation and and really eye-opening. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Anna, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. And that is it for the show. Claire's book is Political Junkies, From Talk Radio to Twitter, How Alternative Media Hooked Us on Politics and Broke Our Democracy. And again, since we use that word so much, thanks for your patience. I know getting through that conversation was worth it for me. With Friends Like These is a production of Crooked Media. The show is produced by Allison Herrera. Lily Alexandrov orders the books and arranges the guests. Izzy Margulies corrals our ideas. And Liam McMahon ghostwrites my wonkier Twitter threads. Kyle Goodmanson engineered this episode. Whitney Pastrek forces me to promote myself. Thanks to them. Thanks to you. Take care of yourselves. (laughs) 